Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, if you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and uh, I do more than just induct new members. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I've been working through a, a short series on the seven deadly sins called virtue and vice. And I'll just remind you quickly that the seven deadly sins are not the seven worst things a person can do spiritually or morally. That's not why they're called the seven deadly sins. It's called the seven deadly sins because a group of ancient monks retreating into the desert to live for the better part of their adult lives just focused on pursuing their relationship with God and looking deep into their own hearts to try to understand what does it mean to know God and to follow Christ. And then furthermore, they were trying to build the deepest level of Christian community with one another. We talk about community, but very few of us will ever be a part of a community where every other member has sold everything, left everything, gone out into a desert commune to live every waking moment together in fellowship. So unless you've been a part of that, we've got to trust these crazy dudes to have discovered certain things about our hearts, about Christian community, about knowing God, which are a revelation to us that we can't get to on our own the way we've chosen to live our lives. And they came up with this list of seven because these are the seven distortions or bends in the human heart that most block people from getting close to God and living in community with one another. They are the distortions of the human heart that lead to every other problem or sin which breaks up the relationship that we have with God and with other people. Does that make sense to you? So that's what this list of seven deadly sins is. And so with each vice or sin, they also point to some corresponding virtues that are the remedy. This morning, we're going to look at sloth. And I know that many of us immediately assume this has nothing to do with me because we're such busy, busy people. What what images come to your mind when you hear the word sloth? It's such a cute animal. if, If... if I could have a pet sloth, I think I'd do it in a second. But obviously, this animal is why we, I mean, because if you've ever seen one in the wild, they just are not in a hurry at all, right, ever. Sloths, if they lived in buildings, would always die in the fire because they are just, you know. But what image, because that cannot be the only thing we think of as slow-moving people, people who are never in a hurry. What images or words pop into your mind when you hear the word sloth? Well, probably the most common phrase is going to be couch potato, right? What's a couch potato? It's literally a person who, I know potatoes are technically a vegetable, but... It's somebody who is like in a vegetative state, stuck on the couch, unable to muster the will to engage in life, to actually get out there and be alive. So they just lay there, often with a remote control in one hand, a bag of Cheetos on their chest, and just, I'm going to sit here. I can't, I know it's nice out, but I'm not going to forget it. It's not worth And they're just stuck 
in a vegetative paralysis. Now, maybe that's not the, it's not the culture stuck in, but maybe that's the imagery you conjure up is it's just somebody who's totally passive. There is an, uh, a 16th century um, Dutch painter named Hieronymus Bosch. Any of you guys familiar with his work? Not the guy who's the detective on the Amazon video TV series or the books, but the guy who painted these crazy pictures depicting faith. And he painted a a circular thing of the seven deadly sins. It's a little distorted in this image because it's part of a, a donut of the seven deadly sins. It's a really interesting painting if you look at the whole thing. But I zoomed in here on his depiction of sloth. And what you picture, this is a guy who clearly anyone seeing it in those days would have seen him as a wealthy estate owner. He is asleep on a pillowed, cushioned chair in front of a warm fire with his dog asleep at his feet. And he is in bliss. He's surrounded by his palatial home. He's got everything he needs, and he is going to just take it easy. And he is oblivious to the nun who is holding out to him the rosary and the scripture, inviting him to continue exploring and growing in his relationship with God. Now, that was his depiction of the cardinal sin or vice called sloth as the early monks, the desert fathers, understood that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's depicting passivity, but what we have to understand is that sloth as a cardinal vice is more than just laziness. If laziness is your problem, God has a lot to say about laziness. It's not like it's not an issue. If you're stuck in just basic laziness, like I don't know how to work hard, God does say, I mean, one of the rules of the church, the early church that Paul gave in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is if a person is unwilling to work, they shall not eat. One of the things Paul taught the early church is if you are a freeloader, a deadbeat, if you, if you can work, but you just don't like working, you're just going to be like, oh, I can't even. Right? The, the, the classic saying, I'm trying to can and I can't even. If that's your attitude, you can, you can lay there all day. You just don't get to eat with us because this is a community of people who bear their weight together. They contribute and they enjoy the fruits of that contribution together. And so one of the rules for the early church is if you're going to lay around and you're unwilling to work, I'm not talking about unable to work. If you're unwilling to work, you don't eat with us. You sit over there and eat what you have produced, which is nothing. Uh, if you're curious about God's take in general on diligence and laziness, I preached a message last May. I'll, I'll put a link to it when I send out the recap uh, on Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, based on a piece of paper my father taped to my headboard in high school. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? <laughs> I can't hear those verses without feeling exactly the emotions I felt when I woke up and read that. It was worse than if my dad had kicked me. It was like, I am such a loser. And, and it just rebuked my spirit so much. And so there is something God has to say about laziness. But I want you to know that sloth, being on this list of seven deadly sins, is much, much more than just being lazy. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not lazy at all. I work very hard. In fact, I never settle down. Take it easy. But understand that you can still keep listening to this message. It might still be for you. It's also not just appropriate leisure, right? I mean, idleness. The Italians have this phrase that I really love. The, the phrase is dolce far niente. 
It means sweet do nothing. I even like just saying it. The sweet do nothing. What the... What it describes is one of those days where you wake up and discover that you don't have to be at work, you don't have to be at school, there are no appointments, nobody's expecting anything from you, the house is empty, nobody's around, and you just have an entire day to be whatever you want to be, to do whatever you want to do, no pressure, no hurry, nothing. Now, the way most of us choose to spend a day like that is shamefully weird, but still, what they're saying is you can't flourish as a human being without a few days like that peppered into every year. We all need days where there's this sweet do-nothing agenda on the calendar. Are you with me? I, I'm, some of you, I've completely lost you. You're, you're in your dolce far niente moment right now, like, oh, if only one. I love days like that. I relish them. I confess that quite often when I get one, I completely waste it in stupidity and wish I had another one, but such is the human heart. But those kinds of days of leisure and releasing pressure, that's not what sloth is addressing. In fact, in a workaholic culture like ours, a little idleness, a little bit of relaxation is actually a virtue, not a sin. Some of us, what we need to hear is God wants you to stop moving and sit still. But that's not what sloth is about either. So what is sloth then? If it's not laziness and it's not leisure, what is it that is so problematic that a word like sloth depicted by this cute animal could possibly end up on a list of the seven deadliest things that could affect the human heart? Well, in answering that question, I've got to give credit to this woman. Her name is Rebecca DeYoung. She wrote a book called Glittering Vices, and her writing has shaped my thinking on this probably more than anybody else's. I really, she's a professor, and I really appreciate the way she thinks about and writes about this subject. And her chapter on sloth was one of the most helpful things I've read on this subject ever. And so I want to give credit to her. A lot of what I want to share with you is inspired by or built on her thinking, her writing. I don't want to take credit for that. And so rather than paraphrasing her stuff and acting like I thought of it, I'm going to just quote stuff from her directly throughout this message because she's brilliant in the way that she has understood and studied this particular subject. So if sloth is not just laziness or leisure, then that means most of us who came in thinking, sloth, that's not my issue, you still should be listening because it might still affect you. What is it? A clue is given to us in the fact that the opposite of sloth is widely regarded as being diligent, right? The word diligence. If you're not slothful, you're diligent. But that the word diligent in English is based on a Latin root word, deligere, which is translated to have, to have empathy, or, I, mean, I mean esteem, respect, or love for someone else. Isn't that weird? So the word diligent is based on the Latin word for love, to love someone else. In other words, sloth, if, if its opposite is diligence, Diligence is primarily an expression not of industriousness or hard work ethic, but diligence in its purest form, even the the pagans understood this, diligence in its purest form is always a function of love and esteem and respect, not just duty or hard work. 
The idea of the Protestant work ethic that God delights simply in our working hard all the time because he called us to work, there is truth to that. But any hard work that is divorced from love, a response of love, is not the kind of hard work that should be lifted up. Some of us work so hard, we make everyone around us crazy, and we say we're doing it for them, and everyone's screaming, then stop doing it for us. Because your hard work is ruining our lives. Diligence is ultimately a function of love. That's why when you go to someone's home and they've cooked a home-cooked meal and it's cooked with love, the deliciousness is not just in the the chef's skill, but in the hard work and the response of love with which that dish was prepared. And I don't know if you know this, but love is one of the tastiest spices you can use in cooking. And I can tell you right now, you can taste love in food. Amen? Am I like, you guys can actually taste it when food was cooked with love. I've had some meals, actually many of the most delicious meals I've had are cooked by your mothers. <laughs> when I go over and you say, oh yeah, my mom or my mother-in-law cooked this food and she wanted to do it for you guys and I eat that, I'm like, it's better than anything I ever bought. I don't know what it is about a mother's love. But that's the whole point, is that sloth, as the early church fathers understood it, was not a violation of working hard. It's a failure or dereliction of love. It's about being lazy, not at work, but about being lazy in love. And that's something that I think is plaguing the church today. It's absolutely relevant today because we are so hardworking at everything, but when it comes to the demands of love in the relationships that matter the most to us, most of us are so ready to just lay down and give up after a few years of really hard effort. The meaning of sloth is that it is a passive resistance to the demands of love on us. We can hear people telling us what they need from us. We can hear people crying out to us in their distress. And we can even hear God saying, come and show your love to me. The greatest command that God ever gave us, communicated through the mouth of Jesus, is what? What is the greatest commandment, Sunday school class? You you know, right? Love the Lord when God looked at the human race and, said, and we asked, what do you want from us? His answer was immediate. Love me with everything you have. If you love me with everything you have, your life will be ordered properly and everything will be different. You stop loving me and you will lose the capacity to love anyone else, including even yourself. So the greatest command that God gives us is to love him and out of that flows every other love in our lives. I think the reason a lot of younger people cannot find true love is not that the world is full of inadequate partners, but because they have not yet fully learned how to love the God who made them and therefore they don't have a properly developed capacity to love Anyone, if you cannot love the God who made you, raised you, provided for you, saved you, if you cannot love a perfect, sinless, nurturing God, every other being in the universe has no chance with you. 
Do you understand that? If you, can, if you can have a problem with God, who else is possibly going to meet your high standard? Can you imagine coming up to someone going, hey, I, I like, I'm kind of interested in you. I'm kind of into you. Now, listen, I dumped God a couple years ago because he was not meeting standards, man. Uh, I'd like you to join my life, and I'd like you to do better than God did. You're going to see the back of that person as they run for the hills because that's insane. If we cannot learn to love God, we'll never really learn to love anyone else. And you can shout at that person, love me, love me, and they hear you, but they can't, they won't. And so the first relationship that sloth is relevant to, the first failure of love that erodes the heart is a failure to love God as he calls us to love him. Listen to what, uh, what Professor DeYoung writes in her book. Loving another person requires a thousand little deaths. Some of you are like, maybe a hundred thousand. You know, it's not just a thousand, because you're already at a thousand. You're like, if I'm keeping count, I'm way past. It requires a thousand little deaths of our old individual selfish nature. And don't take that as, oh, you're so... Think about it by the very definition. If you want to enter into the deepest kind of relationship with another, one of the things that must die is this idea that I'm an individual. That doesn't mean you don't matter, but that you, if you conceive yourself primarily as me, separate from others, you cannot actually enter into the deepest kind of relationship. I think this is the problem with so many relationships today romantically is, I don't want to lose anything of me, but I just want to add you. If the other person is saying the same thing, how can you possibly have a union? How can you remain two totally separate people and achieve oneness? Can one plus one equal one and one? No, it always equals two. Those two things add and become a whole new number. No one says, what's one plus one? It's one one. You always say it's two. That's just simple math. And so by its nature, clinging to my own individuality and selfhood with zealousness works against union. This is the work that the slothful one resists, is the dying to my selfish individuality because the truth is that person who wants to be individual and selfish also wants the relationship. They're torn. They're at war within themselves. I want the benefits of this life-giving, loving relationship, but I'm not sure I'm willing to give up any of what's required to get there. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Some of you are trying very hard not to jab someone next to you, but listen, start with you. Because I've, I've been studying for this sermon, and I thought, I'm going to preach this because I've already mastered this. I am garbage, man. I've looked at this all week. I'm like... I thought I was going to be okay. I'm not so sure I am. Professor DeYoung continues, the slothful person resists the effort of doing day after day after day. I love that she repeats a third time. Day after day is just a phrase, but day after day after day says something, doesn't it? Whatever it takes to keep the bonds of love strong and living and healthy whether he or she feels particularly inspired about doing it or not. Now, I know the temptation is here at this point to immediately think of human relationships. But before you jump to the human relationships, consider for a moment, does this first describe the relationship you have with God? 
The God who has loved you from the day he conceived of you. Who has never stopped loving you. Are you doing day after day after day the most basic things that are required for a human being in our fallen state to have a loving relationship with the God of the universe? It's amazing it's possible to have such a relationship at all. But are you doing those basic things day after day after day, even and maybe especially when you don't really feel like it? I know that sounds like a terrible depiction of love because Hollywood told us love is just something you fall into. I'm just in love. It's so silly because it's supposed to feel like that once in a while, but if you're waiting for that every day, there's no one you will ever love. Do you even love you like that? I've been waking up for the last few decades not really in love with me. There are a few good days where I'm like, I kind of like me. I'm all right. Most days I just like, why am I, why am I like this? Am I the only one? The rest of you have really good self-esteem. Sometimes I hate me. I truly hate me. If I could leave me, I would. But I'm stuck. You with me? Some of you are very much with me, aren't you? Now, I'll grant you that most of us get to that place of resisting the demands of love because we've been disappointed and hurt. I tried. It didn't work. I hear that all the time, and I understand. If that's where you are, see, because sloth is that tension between really wanting love but refusing to give what love requires. I know what I have to do here. I'm just not going to do it, but I still yearn to have it. So I have the people in this world stay together. Where else am I going to go? But man, this stinks. I wish I could have more with you, but I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. I'm not going to bend for you. And that's where we get stuck for a really long time. And we get stuck there because we were hurt. Because we really did have a long season where we tried as hard as we could. And if that's where you're stuck, I'm not going to chastise you or rebuke you. I want to actually affirm you. I want to validate your experience and tell you that in those years when you really tried hard, God delighted in you. He was pleased with that effort. But what he wants you to hear this morning is that that point at which you believed something that justified bailing on that relationship, on giving up, saying, I've had enough, this is pointless, it won't work. That was the day you gave up, not just on a relationship, but on the very idea of love as a commitment. What you said is that every relationship has an expiration date, a shelf life, a limit, and after that limit, it's hopeless. And what God says is that is never true. Not as long as he lives. Not as long as he imbues human beings with spiritual power. It is never true that love is pointless and futile. I know that in your experience, it feels that way in a particular relationship. Maybe even in your relationship with God, you're like, what do you want me to do, God? I tried. I really did. And you didn't show up. Out of that pain and disappointment, we make decisions about who God is to us and how we will respond to him. And out of that decision, 
flows a habit of responding to just about everyone in pretty much the same rules. She writes, sloth is not primarily a feeling. It is a well-entrenched and willful resistance, even as love is fundamentally a choice. Now, fasten your seatbelts because i got to pick up the pace here if I'm going to get done in time. We have a picnic to enjoy. I'm going to tell you that your frustration, your feelings of despair and giving up, I get that totally. So does God. I think he understands how easy it is to get to that point. And rather than chastising you, I want to give you some hope. Because here's what God has to say to us through Peter, who, when, before he saw the resurrected Christ, rarely had anything worth listening to come out of his mouth. But after he saw the risen Christ, he became a theologian among theologians. He became one of the most brilliant pastoral writers there was. And he says this about our story. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Here's what he's saying. I'll just break this down for you. He's saying that one of the easiest ways to bail on God is by saying to God, you have left me shorthanded. You have not given me enough to live life the way you asked me to. I'm glad you told me to do this, but it's like the, the Egyptian slave masters saying to the Hebrews, make bricks, but don't, we, we're not going to give you hay and stubble. And, you know, why are you making it harder than it has to be for me? I'm trying and you keep getting in my way, God. You keep leaving me shorthanded. I want to be a good husband, but you gave me that wife. <laughs> I want to be a good wife, but you, look at the man you gave me. What do you want from me? Look at the man she gets to be married to. I could find, I could be totally great if I was in her life. But in my life, you're asking too much. And that's the lie we want to believe so badly is, I was ripped off. I was robbed. Everyone else has it easy. I alone have to climb uphill both ways. Now, that might be somewhat true of your circumstances. But when you cross over to say, God did that to mess with me. He's unfair. He's unjust. That's when we begin to drift. And he's saying, listen, this is the promise of God for every human being. He's given you enough to live the godly life he has called you to live. It may not be right on the bottom shelf. You may have to reach for it, but it's there for you. And in addition to that, he's given us this very precious promise that if you will hear him and trust him, you will participate in the deepest level of relationship with God. So much power will eventually flow through you that the corruption of this messed up world will one day be left behind. Everything you're sick of down here and in here, God will one day pull you out of that. That's the promise. That's the secure thing that each of us can bank on. So then, from that place, look what he goes on to say, for this very reason, make every effort. 
In other words, he doesn't start with the message, you work hard at faith, at loving God. You make every effort, and then God will do something in return. He begins with God, and he said, God has already given you everything you need. He's promised you amazing things. The power is there. And because he has already supplied, he's provided, and he's promised, he calls us now, now make every effort. Don't quit Don't get lazy because every effort you make in response to God is going to be worth it in the end. Every effort you make will produce something in the real world eventually because God has promised it. I know that right now in the deep, deep, dark valley you're in, you cannot see change coming. It feels hopeless. And I'm not trying to make light of that. Some of you, I'm walking with you through your valley, and I know what you're facing. It doesn't seem like anything can possibly bring light into your life right now. And yet he says to us, make every effort. Do not give in to that yearning of the heart to grow lazy in loving God and loving others. Because every effort you make is built on the foundation of God's provision and God's promises. Another way of saying it is that to be diligent in love is never wasted effort. It's never hopeless. It's never a waste of time. It is always worthwhile. I read this beautiful prayer um, this week in preparing for this message. This person stood up in a chapel somewhere in a university and prayed this prayer. Forgive me for letting love die when it demands action in order to live. I'll make sure to include that in the recap. I hope that that prayer will ring around in your heart the way it's been ringing around in mine. So, woo! <clears throat> Let me move on. What I, I just did something bad, guys. What did I do? Okay. So what are the forms of sloth? If sloth is not just laziness or leisure, but it is being stuck in that place where I want love, but I refuse to pay the price. I want to quit. I want to give. I just don't want to anymore. I I, I don't even want to try. I know I could, but I'm not going to. That's the tension of sloth. It's this yearning to just be passive and resistant to the demands of love, even while we won't give up our yearning for love. Are you feeling me? Have you, have you ever in your life been there with God or with another person? I have. The Latin for the word sloth is, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but it's acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A. I've been reading that word all week. And it's a good word because it captures in Latin what we cannot quite capture in English. There's a poet and an author named Kathleen Norris. And, and she wrote these words in a book called Acedia and Me. <laughs> Here's what she said. All her life since adolescence, she's been feeling this feeling and didn't know how to name it. And then she came upon the seven deadly sins and read the description of Acedia or sloth. And she understood it perfectly described what she's felt since she was a teenager. It's a sense of restlessness bookended between periods of sheer apathy and frenetic busyness. That is such a good description of sloth. Those are the two extreme expressions of sloth. There is total shutdown. I I don't even care. Just shut up. 
Stop yapping. I don't care. Don't even finish your sentence. Nothing matters. I'm dead inside. That's one face of sloth is I can't even, I won't, I just don't care. And the other is just running around like a chicken with its head cut off, doing anything and everything. Frenetic busyness. How can it be that frenetic busyness can show up in a definition of sloth? Do you know what it looks like when a sloth is busy? <laughs> looks like when a sloth is asleep. It's the same. Like, I, wanted, I, I actually toyed with the idea of playing that clip from the DMV in Zootopia. When the, not because it has any meaning or would add value to the sermon, but just because it's so fun to watch. Here's what she's saying. A slothful heart often ping-pongs between total I don't care and complete crazy activity. And let me explain why. Because at that fork in the road, when I want love, but I won't pay the price, I won't give what I know I need to give. I just refuse. At that road, that fork, there's two possible expressions of our heart then, two responses. And the first is the path of apathy. That's the shutdown mode. That's the mode that says, I'm going to give in to despairing resignation. Another way of saying it is, I'm just going to give up. What's the point? I've tried with God. I've tried with my loved ones. I have really, really tried, and there was no change. So you know what? I give up. Fine, you win. I wave the white flag. Now, every one of us has probably been there at some point. Am I right? Probably every one of us has flirted with that place in a relationship or just with the world in general. I'm done. Forget it. I just give up. It's this numbing of the heart. It's passivity taken to an extreme. It's shutting down my heart so I don't have to feel, so I won't feel. It's the thousand-mile stare as you walk into the house where you live and your family is around you and you just, you're like this. How was your day? Yeah, uh, whatever. It was a day. And you know what you're doing to people. You're hurting them more by your cold deadness than by your aggression. It's one of the worst kinds of responses to hopelessness and love is just giving up. And yet it's such an easy, tempting place to go. Because it empowers us. Even though I hate feeling like that, it's a kind of way of getting the power back. You want to not love me right? Fine. You'll have, you'll have, you just won't have me. I will disappear from your world. You will see me every day and never be able to touch me. That's what I'm going to give to you. Some of us have actually thought those very words, haven't we? I'm going to show you me and I'll never let you touch me. I will be dead to you. I will be disappeared. It's giving up on the possibility of love. It's quitting. And I know why we get there. I know how easy it is to fall into that. And I say, in the authority and love of God, don't do it. There's a second road ahead at that fork, and that's the path of avoidance. There's apathy on the one hand, I just give up. The other is Desperate escapism. I can't get what I need here with God or with you. I need something. I need to feel alive. I need to feel good. I need to feel affirmed. 
I need to just feel alive, and I am not getting it here. But I can't just not get it, so I'll get it somewhere. And so the person believing escape is possible looks for any hopeful outlet to give them something to live for, something to take their mind off the dire situation that their heart's really in. Anything at all. If apathy is the temptation to give up, avoidance is the temptation to get out. And some of us are so structurally fixed in this thing, I can't get out literally, so I will get out fantasy-wise. I will get out through the pathway of distraction. This is why some of the busiest people you know are some of the most slothful people you will ever meet. Do you know, and let me, let me give you some, I, I had fun thinking about this list, and this is all autobiographical, by the way, okay? And this, this is not about you people, it's about me. Come join me in my brokenness. Examples of avoidance. This was me in high school. I did not know Jesus very well at all. And I had this deep vacuum of insecurity and panic, existential panic, and I was constantly needing to be with people. My best friend and, and I, we talked about it every week. We're like, oh my God, we have nothing to look forward to this weekend. And we look at each other like we're on a sinking ship, like, quick, quick, anything. Is someone having a party? Do you know? And he would say, like, I, I know some guys who are part of this Portuguese gym and they're having something. All right, done. I could not bear to be alone at home with my thoughts. I couldn't. And so I was constantly filling my calendar. I needed to be booked because the minute I wasn't with other people, I had to be with me in myself, and I hated it. Constant socializing. Another is excessive consumption. Some take the road of shopping. Every time you feel bad, you whip out the credit card, and you go to the mall, man. Just, I'm going to... And you know that immediate feeling of like, oh, so cute. I love it. You know, all these bags and the more bags you got to bring in and hide in the back of your closet and act like you bought it years ago. You know that trick, right? What, that? That's not new. I had it like six months ago. You don't actually tell people you, you've been hiding it for six months. But that, that point of just getting that lift from consuming because there's something deeply satisfying about consuming when you feel empty. It doesn't even have to be eating what you're hungry for. Do you know that sometimes I am really hungry for real food, but what I have is a tub of 100,000 grand bars or whatever from Elijah's. Last night this happened. I was starving. I was up late. I was starving. And I looked at my desk, and there was this metal tub of 100 grand bite-sized candy bars. And it beckoned to my spirit. I just ate. And as the caramel cleared from my teeth, and the one... I need another one. And I just kept going. And it wasn't what I was hungry for, but it was what was there, and I chowed. I ate it like it was steak and salad. I mean, I just ate and ate and ate. There's still a few left, kids, but daddy did not leave you many. Isn't that what consumption is? It's a way of escaping. Think about how much diligence it takes to binge watch two seasons of a show in three days. Do you realize the commitment and diligence that takes? I mean, you got to really want... And you know what it is? I've done it before. I'm not telling you it's just... I've, done, I've watched an entire season of a show in two days. I can't say I'm proud of it. It took hard work. 
But here's what was happening. I said to myself, this is not about addiction. I am caught up in the story. I'm rooting for these characters. It's such good character development. I, and you know what I was doing is there was a story going on in my real life that was stressing me out, and I couldn't face my actual story. So I chose instead to root with all my heart for some fictional woman who rides dragons. Please be a good queen. I chose, rather than deal with my own story, to get lost in a fictional one so that at least I could feel something. So I could feel like something is happening. There's a hero to root for, some change, some progress, anything, because I don't want to live my story. I can't bear to right now. Do you realize how much escapism is caught up in that kind of consumption? Workaholism, just being at work all the time, burying yourself in it, saying, I had to be at the office. You chose to be there. You could still have your job and come home for dinner, but dinner at home is not the place you want to be. Doing lots of ministry, this is a surprising one. Sometimes a person who suddenly volunteers for everything is running from something, not to God. They are running from something. Activism for a cause, getting agitated, worked up, being the hero, the rescuer for some other people. Or a major undertaking. Starting a business, you don't have to start. I already have a job. Why do you start another one? I don't know. Why are you going to remodel the house? I don't know. Because I need something to completely consume me right now. Because if I don't, I'm going to actually start thinking. And it's not good when I start thinking. Are you with me? Now, what do you notice about all of these things? If I took away examples of avoidance and said good ways to spend a life, they're actually, in a lot of these things, there's not an inherent moral problem. They could actually be really good things. I hope that you have excessive consumption of Scripture. I hope you have a problem of overeating the Word of God. I hope you work hard. I hope whatever. But the problem is they could all be totally legitimate activities or they could be signs of very unhealthy escapism. You're the decider of that. I can't point to the activity and go, see, look at, look at. Audrey Coe is volunteering for everything lately. What is she running from? I can't do that because it could be totally a response to the work of the Holy Spirit in her. Sorry to pick on you, Audrey. It's safe, though. You're one of our leaders. Yeah. But it could also be that she cannot face something, and so she is running. Do you get that? I'm not saying every time you do this, you're escaping, but you might be. And you have to be honest before God and recognize, is what I'm doing really at face value what I say it's for? Is it really because I just really love Game of Thrones? Yes, at some level, Sure. It's not a bad show. It's not, it's not great. If you haven't started, don't buy It's okay. Live your life. Prison Break Season 1, on the other hand. But the point, is, the point is this. You don't have to be suspicious of others. You just have to be honest about you. Sloth can sometimes take the form of frenetic activity. Some of the most slothful people are the ones that everyone else says, look, I don't know how she does it. She never stops moving. He is a machine. And you're like, I am. 
It's not good. <laughs> so we've looked at what sloth is. We looked at how it appears in our lives. How do we fix it? <clears throat> this is the part that blew me away. This is the part that only a bunch of guys in the desert who have given up everything can arrive at an answer like this. Because I was thinking before I read anything, like what would my answer be if someone came up to me and said, Pastor Dave, I heard the first two-thirds of your sermon. It's me. I am sloth. Help me. And I thought, what would I say to them? What would I, how would I fix this? And all my answers turned out to be kind of wrong. Remember that the primary relationship of love that sloth has to do with is the relationship with God. The command to love God well with everything we have and how easy it is to get lazy about that, passive, resistant. And so when I read the ancient church father's solution to sloth, it really took my breath away. The ancient strategy against sloth seems counterintuitive. Rather than seeking some new way to infuse life and breath into one's relationship with God, the Desert Fathers recommended stabilitas loci, stability of place. Now that's going to need some unpacking. When I'm getting stale with God, my answer is, why don't you try listening to the Bible on audio while you skydive? Associate that boring thing with a new thrill and be like, yeah, that's great. I like that. That's my answer to a lot of things. Is like, if it's getting stale, spice it up a little bit. You go to Wendy's with date night, why don't you try at least moving up to Red Lobster or Panera, something. And so that's our usual human answer, right? Is kick it up a notch. Emerald Agassiz, bam! That's the answer, isn't it? Get that heart started up again. Give yourself a great jolt and then you'll like it more. And that's what I was about ready to say. If you're in the stupor of slothfulness, shake things up. Here's what they say. See, the desert monks, they intentionally scheduled their noonday or their midday meal at 3 p.m. They woke up and started the day in hard work with breakfast prayers at 6 a.m. That's when the day got started. So by noon, they've been hard at work and they're starving. And normal people eat lunch at 12. These, these crazy dudes schedule lunch at 3. And they would say, and, and from 12 to 3 in the heat of the midday without AC, they would sit in a little, and they call them cells. That's hilarious to me. Their room in the monastery was called a cell, and they would sit in there and just think about God and about their own hearts. They would ask the Lord to draw them near in prayer. And what they would write in their private journals is hilarious. It, it was stuff like, I kept looking out the window at the sun, and it hasn't moved. Why does the sun move so slowly between 12 to 3? Or, I feel as though I've been fasting for six weeks. It's just been six hours, but it feels like six weeks because normally I want to eat now. And they would go through all these things, and everything in them was screaming. And here's, it's very honest confessions. They would write things like, what am I doing here? This is a stupid way for a Christian to live. What is the point of sitting in a cell thinking about God? I could be of much more use to God out there. I haven't seen my ailing mother in years. I should just be with her. Why am I? And everything in them was saying, get out. This is stupid, pointless. Why are you doing it? Get out of there. 
run for the open, open country. Another thought they would write is, I think the other monasteries have such a better life. It's hilarious, right? This, isn't that what you say about when, when harvest is getting stale? Like, oh, I heard some great things going on. And that's what happens to all of us. And so they would confess to their superiors at the monastery. I'm having crazy, distracting thoughts during the, 12th, the noonday. And they called it the noonday demon, sloth. And their answer was this. If sloth's greatest urge is to give up or get out, then the greatest remedy is to stay put and bear down. If the greatest temptation of sloth is to give up or get out, then the greatest remedy is to stay right where you are and bear down. Let me give you that story through an illustration. This summer, after the the high school season was over, my son Elijah played in a park district rec league. It was basically... Bunch of kids from high school teams in the area that got together without coaches getting in the way and just had fun playing. Unfortunately, his team had five kids most of the season because two of them kept flaking out and not showing up. So he had five kids, no bench. Now, in, when you're playing back-to-back basketball games, that's tiring. And they went up against a team full of kids Elijah used to play against who are really good. I mean, really, some of these kids are D1 scholarship athletes. And this team happened to have a deep bench a total roster of 10 players, so they could keep swapping out. Elijah dropped like 30 points already by our, like halftime, and the rest of his team was gassed. He was looking tired, and they were ready to lay down and quit. You could see it in their body language. You could see it in their eyes. This game was over. Just let it be finished already. They just wanted to go home and play Fortnite. <laughs> I could see it. I know exactly what they're thinking. And then Elijah came alive, and he hit four three-pointers in a row, and he looked at his team, and he shouted. This is one of my favorite phrases in the common youth culture today. He said, let's go! I love that phrase. You know that, you know that feel? We old people say, let's go! You, when you kids say it, it feels like something, like, like stars are shifting in their orbits or something. Let's go! It's such a raw statement of intent. Here's what he was saying when he looked at his team. You guys need to stop laying down and dying. We're still in the game. Be here now, not in your basement playing Fortnite. That's coming, I promise. In 20 minutes, we'll be online. But right now, this is where we are. Be here. Stop dying. There's still minutes left. Let's go. Let's fight. It's still worth it. That heart captures this decision not to run, to quit, to give up, to get out, but to stay right here and finish this game. I hate what the scoreboard looks like. I hate that we have no one to relieve us off the bench, but we still have legs and arms and brains and eyes, and we can finish this game well. Let's go. Are you feeling me? That's what God is calling us to. Let's go. And the value of not going, you could say, yeah, let's go. Let's get out of here. He's not saying, let's get out of here. He's saying, let's go right here. Don't run. Don't quit. Let's go. And the value of that is it allows you to re-engage with your actual life. Not the life you wish you had, but the life you're actually living right now. The stuff you want to run from, you have to live. Novelist Flannery O'Connor was asked about the um, demise of the modern novel, and she wrote these words that really haunt me. 
people without hope not only don't write novels, but what is more to the point, they don't read them. She's saying the reason the novel's dying is nobody reads long stuff anymore. And listen to what she wrote. They don't take long looks at anything because they lack the courage. They don't take long looks at anything because they lack the courage. You know, some of the reasons we give up or we get out is because otherwise we'd have to sit there and take a long look at this thing which is my so-called life. My relationship with God, my relationship with my loved ones, not yours, not some fictional character, not a dragon riding queen, me, my life. And I would have to actually take a long look at my life and make some meaning of it, some sense of it, find peace in it. And what she's suggesting is that more and more people have taken the easy way out and we lack the courage to take the long looks that are required to actually be people. Apathy and avoidance are both ways to dodge the issue, to not handle or live the life we actually have. I'll give you one last excerpt from Professor DeYoung's book. Overcoming slothful tendencies requires us to face up to the sources of our own resistance to the demands of our relationship with God rather than grasping at a way out or a ready diversion anytime we start to feel stretched or uncomfortable or just plain sick and tired of it all. That's her way of saying the only way out of sloth is to have the courage to stay put and have that long look at your own real life. That is not going to be easy, but you'll never do it alone. I want to, I've been giving you some practical things. Let me end with one practical thing that's helped me so much in this area of spiritual sloth. It is, ironically, the personal retreat. My answer to sloth has been to get away from it all and be alone with God. In fact, this week I just got off of my quarterly, I do this every quarter, three days and two nights away from everyone and everything in an unplugged place that's straight out of a time machine. It's like out of the 19th century. This is the room I use. I use the same room every time, room 241, the Reverend Maloney room. This time they didn't have it ready. I actually slept in a room that had just been used by someone else. It was gross. But I have a deep rootedness to this physical place. It's my room. It's not because it's the Ritz-Carlton. Look at it. It's nothing. It really is a cell. But I cannot tell you the profound ways that God's met me in that room. Ironically, on a three-day, two-night retreat, the first step is always that the first day I sleep like crazy. I sleep and sleep and sleep because I don't realize how exhausted I've been, how hard I've been running at or away from everything. And God invites me in and says, you need to just be still and rest because tomorrow we're going to take some long looks. You got to be strong. You got to be ready. Coach Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. He's right. When you're tired, you can't look at the hard stuff. 
So it begins with rest. Isn't that ironic that the cure for sloth is a day of sleep? <laughs> so weird, but it works. And, and I wake up in that place, and this is how I wake up. The sun alights on my face, and I go, Good morning, Lord. What's this weird feeling I'm feeling? Oh, it's restedness. What a strange sensation. It's peace in my body, in my heart. And then we roll up our sleeves and I look at my life. I don't always love what I see, but it strengthens me to look at it. It helps me emerge out of the temptation to give up or to get out. And suddenly I hear the voice of God. I'm always surprised on these retreats how it's the simple things, the fixtures, the staples of praying, thinking, reading, writing, walking. So simple, nothing unusual, but God uses it to restore the depths of my soul to Him. And I come home ready to love everyone else better. So I want to end there. I want to invite our praise team to come back up and I want to give us just a moment here to reflect. Maybe you walked in hearing that we're going to be learning about sloth and thought, I'm way too busy to worry about sloth. But does it describe where you are? Are you finding that love is falling apart in your life? That you're tempted to give up or get out? in your love relationship with God and as a result in every other relationship? Have you started to believe lies like God hasn't given me what I need? He doesn't have my back. He's not fair. He's not with me. He won't help. He will. He has never given up on you. He still sees you in the valley you're walking through right now. You're not invisible to Him and you still matter to Him. Don't give up on him. So I'm going to give you a minute of quiet to respond to God. We'll sing a song and then we'll close out our service and go to the picnic together. Let's go to God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.